Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. and really excited to be with you as we're starting a new series today. And the series is going to center around one central idea, one central concept that's really important for our lives. Uh, in fact, it touches on nearly every aspect of our lives, our families, our friendships, our work, our play, how we live together in society, uh, and how we interact with the people that we share the world with. Um, this idea drives many of the decisions that we make every day, um, and it's integral to our understanding of faith. But it's something that we don't think about very often. It's something that sort of lies in our subconscious. It drives a lot of our decision-making, but it's not something that we consciously think about because it's been so deeply embedded within us, we don't even have to think about it. And the idea that I'm talking about is the concept of justice. The concept of justice. When I say the word justice, I don't know what comes to your mind, but chances are there's something about police officers and laws and judges and courts. And that's certainly an aspect of justice. That's a part of what justice is about. But justice is so much more than that. When we talk about justice, we talk about something that drives the way we think about much of our lives. Our idea of justice affects the way that we think about rules or laws. Whether those laws are set in place by a local government or by a federal government that tell us how fast we can drive or how much taxes that we have to pay, or whether those rules are as simple as the rules in a household that tell you how late you get to stay up or how many hours of screen time you get. Those are rules and laws. Those are all connected to the concept of justice. Justice also affects the way we think about the consequences, that when we, when we run afoul of those rules and laws, what happens? How, it, how do we set things right? That's a question of justice. So, so how much is the fine if you get caught speeding? Uh, how much do you have to pay in penalty if you didn't pay your taxes? How, how long are you, uh, are you suspended or, or, or on, you know, on probation from your devices if you, if you go over your limit for, for kids in our households? And justice certainly affects the way we think about our stuff, the things that we have, and the things that we have access to. These are all questions of justice. Anytime you hear someone say, it's just not fair, they're talking about justice. They wouldn't use that word necessarily, but fairness is a concept connected to justice. Whether that's a complaint about someone cutting in line at the movie theater or taking an extra turn on the swing, swing set, or, or whether you're, you're talking about questions of why do women make less than men and the gender pay gap or, or concepts like white privilege that you hear thrown around. These are all questions of fairness and they're all connected to this idea of justice. So our ideas of justice, the way we think about all of these things, again, they're subconscious, they sit in our subconscious mind, but they affect the way we think about everyday issues. And the way we think about justice, the way that, that these concepts of what's right and wrong and what's fair or what's, what's just or unjust, those get laid down really early. And they come from a lot of different sources. They come from our families. The family that we grew in establishes a lot of the way that we think about what justice is all about. Certainly, the town or the city you grew up in, the country you're from, the culture, and how justice is done, that affects the way everyone thinks about uh, just That's the way our, our backgrounds affect the way we think about justice. And justice is a central part of every single world religion. Every world religion has something to say about the concept of what's right and what's wrong, what's fair and unfair, what's just and unjust. And 
that includes our own faith, the Christian faith. From, from beginning to end, from Old Testament to New Testament, the Bible has a lot to say uh, about uh, justice. It has a lot to say about the concept of justice. And the Bible tells us about justice from God's perspective, which is, which is really helpful because it gives us a starting place. We're, we're not going to go into a deep philosophical conversation uh, about justice and about the nature of what right and wrong is. Uh, it would be a lot of fun. I would certainly enjoy that. I think Andy Blair and I would probably really get into that. But maybe nobody else uh, would enjoy that. If you are a nerd and you would love to get into that, there is a great resource. I'm just going to throw this out for the nerds. Harvard and their Open Learning Initiative has thrown out, they've, they've made publicly available this course called Justice. If you Google Harvard and Justice, Michael Sandel's class on justice is available to you for free. iTunes Learning, any of that. You could go dig as deep as you want to the way, uh, into the way about how philosophers have thought about these concepts of right and wrong, good and bad, and justice and injustice. But we don't have to do that because the Bible has a lot to say about that. It is our starting place. As Christians, the Bible provides us with the foundation for how we think about what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is just, and what is unjust from God's perspective. The problem is... Sometimes that's difficult to find in the Bible because the Bible isn't a textbook. You can't turn to the chapter on justice to read all about it. No, the Bible, in fact, isn't even a book. It's, it's a library of books. It's 66 different books. 40 different authors wrote it over thousands of years of time. And justice is there. It's like a thread that's woven into a complex tapestry or, or into a beautiful rug, a color almost, that you, could, you can look at and you can find it. It goes all the way through, but you can't pull it out. You, you have to see it within the context of the stories of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to try to do today is I'm going to try to set a little bit of context for how the Bible thinks about justice that will set the stage for where we're going to go over the next six weeks as we explore that even more. I want to follow that thread and see what the Bible has to say and I'm going to paint a big picture today uh, for what that looks like. So the concept of justice in the Bible begins on page one. It begins at the very beginning with the book of Genesis and the account of creation. Genesis is this beautiful poetic account of God's creative activity at the beginning of time when he creates all things. And justice really begins when we come to God's crowning creation, to the creation of human beings. You see, Genesis presents the creation of human beings as something unique and different in all of God's creative activity. Somehow or another, you and I, we are different than everything else that we've ever experienced, everything else that we see in creation in the world around us. You see, in Genesis, it tells us that God creates human beings in His image and in His likeness. There's something about us that reflects something about who created us which makes us unique among all the creations. And so he gives us uh, this image, and then he gives us a task, a purpose. Human beings are to rule over, to have dominion over the rest of creation. And we're to do that in such a way that reflects God's priorities, that reflects what God thinks is important, and God thinks is right, and God thinks is good. And we're not supposed to go our own way, but unfortunately you know the, the story, things don't exactly work out that way. 
We begin to go our own way. But, but when we talk about justice, it begins right here at the beginning that there's a clear standard that God gives. There is a right. There is a wrong as God defines it. That is what's true. And that is what's real. So when we begin there, we have to begin with God's creation and purpose for human beings. Because again, of all God's creations, we are unique. Think about this. If one cow pushes another cow on the way to the feed trough, there's no big deal. Like, this is just the way things work, right? But if one kid pushes another kid in line to get to lunch, we have a problem. Teachers are going to get involved. Kids will be sent to the office. Parents are going to be called. It's, it's, an, it's something's happened that's unjust, that's wrong. We get animated about this, right? Likewise, if a pack of hyenas attack a lion who's killed a prey and try to take it from that lion, nobody, that's just the way the animal world works, right? Like, this is the law of the jungle. And yet, if a group of thieves jump you and take your wallet and take your phone and everything that you have on you, then that's not right. The police should be called. There are laws against this. These are issues of justice. See, these, this is something within us as human beings that's different. The rest of the created world doesn't have this. This sense of the need for something to be right, something to be fair, something to be honest, is, it's just woven within us from the beginning of creation. The Bible tells us that this is because human beings were created by God and every human being was endowed with value. Every human being are, is of equal value before God, God, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what ethnicity they are, whether they're male or female, old or young, strong or weak, it doesn't matter. What Genesis gives us as the standard is that all human beings are of equal value, that we all have worth and dignity before God. And we're all worthy of being treated by one another fairly and justly. This is a foundational concept. This is foundational to the way that the Bible tells us that justice is supposed to work. It's a, it's a foundational idea. And I have to say, wouldn't it be nice... If that was the way the world actually worked. If human beings were all treated, if we treated each other with dignity and with honesty and with respect and fairness, it'd be great. It'd be a great place to live, right? But that's, that's, not, that's not the world we live in, is it? No, it's not. What, what the Bible tells us through every account as we follow this thread through the Bible, as we follow the stories of Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, what we see is that every account in the Bible, and for that matter, every account that we have of human history, the pattern of human beings is simply to, do, to go their own way. Every account in human history tells this propensity that we have to deny or attempt to warp this foundational truth that human beings are all equal in value. Over time, what human beings seem to try to do is redraw the lines of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's fair and what's unfair, what's just and unjust, and we always redistrict those lines to advantage ourselves, to privilege ourselves. And power always comes into play in these situations because it's always the weaker people who get the raw end of this deal. The weaker that someone is, the more likely that they are 
to suffer injustice, whether that's physical weakness, intellectual weakness, financial weakness, the easier it is for someone to use their strength to overpower them in order to benefit themselves at someone else's expense. This is the story that we see throughout history, and it's what we see in the news every day. It's what we experience in our everyday life, that the more powerful people use that power to benefit themselves. And in the process, they redefine what's right and what's wrong and what's just and what's unjust in order to to justify themselves and what they're doing. This propensity is something that's just inside all of us. It's inside you. It's inside me. We, We are sort of predisposed to this. And this is what the Bible refers to as sin or our sinful nature. It's part of your nature and my nature to ignore the truth that God has established that all human beings are of equal value and deserve equal treatment and deserve to be valued because they were created in the image of God. And to somehow advantage to twist things to be able to, to get advantages for ourselves. That's just the way that we are bent. It's part of our sinful nature. It happens at an interpersonal level between individuals. It happens within families. It happens in smaller groups, in communities. And eventually it happens in, at, at, at a societal level, in, in cities, and, and even in countries where these things get wrapped up into the patterns of behavior of people where we institutionalize these things, where we, we redistrict the, the idea of what's fair and right around what privileges or benefits those who have power and those who are in control. And those who get the raw end of the deal, again, are the, weak, the weakest, the least powerful, the most weak, the most vulnerable. They're the ones who suffer the most harm in these situations. This is the story that we see through the Bible, and it's the story that we see through history. But in the Bible, in the middle of all this mess of, of what, what humanity sort of does by nature, what we see is that God steps in, and He chooses one man, one family, Abraham. And he says, you're going to be different. In your family, things are going to operate a little bit differently. Abraham and his family were to be God's people and to live according to his truth, to live according to the standards that all human beings are equal in value and equal in worth and should be treated with dignity, respect, and fairness. And as the story unfolds, what we see is that this is something that Abraham embraces and as his family grows, they grow in relationship with God and an understanding of what it means to follow God and to be his people, to live in this way. And eventually, the the group grows into a tribe which becomes essentially a people group, a a nation. Not in the way we think about nations, but a, a large number of people that end up getting resettled for a number of different reasons in Egypt. And things are going along well. They continue to grow and grow until one day Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, realizes that there is a large ethnic minority living within his borders and that they could one day pose a threat to his power. But within that problem exists also an opportunity for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh also sees a workforce that he can use his power to force them into labor. And that's exactly what he does. He uses his power in order to force the Israelites into forced labor. Slavery, essentially. Violating this fundamental idea that's woven into creation, that that human beings are all created by God, created of equal value and equal worth, and deserving of dignity, deserving of fair treatment. 
And so you all know the story, you know what happens, that that God raises up a messenger for Pharaoh, a prophet, a man named Moses, who goes and demands that Pharaoh let his people go, that he let the Israelites go. And, And after plague, after plague, eventually Pharaoh relents, and the Israelites go on their way. They wander in the desert for a while and eventually land in their own place. And during that time in the desert, God gives them the law. He gets really specific about, hey, in your community, in your nation, here's what justice is supposed to look like. Here's what right and wrong looks like. Here's some very specific things for you that you're to do in order to make sure that justice takes place. And these were very, very different practices and customs than the surrounding nations of the time. They were to stand out. They were to be different. They were supposed to be an example to the surrounding nations. They were to be characterized by two characteristics, two Hebrew words. The words tzedakah and mishpah. These two words, they're often translated as righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. But they're always really closely related together. In English, those words, when we hear righteousness, we think that's really a weird kind of churchy word. I don't really know what that means. And we think of justice, maybe we think of the legal system. But in Hebrew, these were really closely related concepts. And they were, they were used throughout the scripture and they, were often, they often showed up together, such as in Psalm 33, where we read, the Lord loves righteousness, tzedakah, and justice, mishpat. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Now, tzedakah, the, the idea of righteousness is, uh, it's, it's a standard, a way of relationship to the requirements that God has for, for the way that we're supposed to live, the way we're supposed to treat each other, the way that we're supposed to be in the world. It's our responsibilities. What is it that we're to do as God, God's people? He gave this to the Israelites as a standard, a way of living. And then justice is, is a way of thinking about what happens when you encounter something that's out of that standard. How should you engage in that? You should try to set things right. Justice is setting right something that is wrong. When you encounter something in the world that is not as it should be, you should use whatever power you have to set it right according to the way that God thinks of what is right. So these two concepts, living right, rightly, righteousness and justice always went together. In the Bible, this concept of justice, they always, and this concept of righteousness, they always go together. Now the irony, if you know much about the Bible, the irony of this whole story is that eventually Israel grows as a nation and becomes more powerful. And guess what they do with their power? They do what powerful people always do. They use that power to advantage themselves at the cost or the expense of those who are weaker. So within their own country, this group of of immigrants who who had been mistreated, treated as slaves, when they get powerful, guess what? The oppressed become the oppressors. And so what we see through the story is that over and over again, when this would happen, just as God did for the nation of Egypt... God does for the nation of Israel. He raises up messengers, prophets, who come and pronounce judgments or give warnings or tell them, you're going the wrong way. You're not living according to the standards that I set in place for the way you're supposed to treat one another, in particular the way you're supposed to treat the least powerful, the most vulnerable among you. 
And so when they, he raised up these prophets, when he raised up these messengers, often they would come with, with very condemning messages. And we have these throughout the, the scriptures. We have these prophets. And one of them, one such messenger was a man named Amos. And Amos uh, has a very interesting story, and I, I thought about trying to tell it to you in its entirety, but I found a much better way to do that. Uh, the folks over at the Bible Project put together these short videos that give kind of an overview of biblical books. And if you've never, if you've never seen the resources there, BibleProject.com, they're really amazing and really helpful in terms of your own personal study and growth. So we're going to take six minutes. This is the book of Amos in six minutes. You don't even have to read it. You can just watch it in six minutes. Take a look at this video. The book of the prophet Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier, remember 1 Kings chapter 12, and it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth, but in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility, and so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealth 
wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos's call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. So righteousness, or in Hebrew tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. The next theme is Amos's repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed a golden calf in each. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshipping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice, because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves. Not the God of Israel, he's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live, and then right after that say to Israel, seek good, not evil, that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced, and they're symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm, and then by a scorching fire, and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel, and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come. But then, all of a sudden, in the final paragraph, we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building, and God says that out of the ruins, he will one day restore the house of David. In other words, he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line, and he will rebuild the family of God's people, which, surprisingly, we're told, is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now this final paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos's words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true 
true worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about. So great overview of an amazing book. Um, now when you go to read it, hopefully you'll have a better picture of what the book is about because the book of Amos is going to be a guide for us over the next six weeks as we look at Amos as a kind of uh, example for what it looks like to be stirred to action to address the issues of injustice that we see in our world. What's amazing about this book is that is that it's a timeless story. Um, a wealthy, arrogant leader using his power to serve his own interests, a powerful upper class using their economic privilege to get richer at the expense of poor people who don't have access to help from the justice system. This could be taken from the headlines from many countries around the world and societies around the world today, including our own. And so I think this message is relevant for us and provides us with insight and into a way of thinking about this idea of how true worship, as the video said, leads us to doing acts of justice. And so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to, to follow along in the path of Amos. Um, and we're going to follow along with people who've taken up that same call. Amos has been an inspiration to so many people through the years who've been motivated to look out into the world and to say, that's not right. To say, I see that human beings are not being treated with the kind of worth and value and dignity and fairness that God intended in creating us all equal. And they've stepped into that. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, MLK quoted directly from Amos declaring, we will not be satisfied. That is in the civil rights movement. We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And these words are actually etched on a monument at the Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. We have a picture of it here. And no offense to MLK, but those are not actually his words. You know, so the, he took these directly from, from the inspiration of a shepherd. That's what's amazing about this. Is This is not a powerful man. Amos was a simple shepherd and farmer who in his own time saw the inequities that were taking place, saw the injustices, and were, he was willing to go and speak that truth to say this is not right, even speaking truth to power. And even now, 2,800 years later, he provides an example and inspiration for people. He was one of the inspirations obviously in one of the most significant justice movements in our country's history. And so Amos still has so much to say to all of us. So over the next six weeks, guided by Amos's example, we're going to explore what it looks like to pursue justice in our world. And it begins for us just as it began for Amos, by opening our eyes to seeing what's happening all around us. Over the next five weeks, uh, we're going to, or actually the next four weeks, we're going to have guests who are going to come in. I have uh, invited, Taylor and I have invited friends, people that we know in the city who have significantly committed a major portion of their life to entering into some issue of injustice. We're going to talk to people who are working in the areas of immigration, working in the area of homelessness, working in the area of international development, working in the area of creation care. And we want to hear from them, what is it that moves moved or motivated them to step out and to begin to put their faith into practice by trying to enter into some of the injustices that they saw in the world and to learn from them 
how did they go about doing that? And what did they learn in the process? They're going to be our teachers as we try to figure out, because this is not easy. This is complex. There's a lot of difficult questions that you begin to have to ask yourself. But the first step, and the step that I want us to take as we go out this week, is the first step that Amos took. And it's to see. It's to simply see what is happening and to acknowledge that something is not right in our world. And so this week, as you go out into your lives, I want you to begin to pay attention. It can be easy to be desensitized to issues of injustice that are happening all around us. But I want you to begin to pay attention. And, and the closer to home you get, the better. You can certainly see lots of injustices if you, if you read the news on the internet or if you watch, watch the evening news on television. But I, I would say pay attention to the people in your life as you go to work every day, within your families, within your neighborhoods. Begin to pay attention to are there times and situations where where someone is not treated as a creation of God, that someone is not treated with the value and and dignity and inherent worth that every one of us were created with. And just see that. I'm not asking you to do anything yet. In fact, what we'll learn from the people we're going to talk to is that sometimes acting too quickly can make things worse. So we want to be observant. We want to be thoughtful. So your assignment this week is to just see to just pay attention to what it is. And my hope is that the end of this, this series that we'll all be inspired and all be challenged to consider how God might be moving us to not just see, but to step in in certain situations and use the power that we've been given to work for justice in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own city. And that as individuals and as families and as our communities, that, that we'll be transformed by our willingness to see and to step into those things. So join me as we pray to close that God would help us to see those things as we go through our week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that we can become numb, that we can just go through our everyday lives and... Um, just turn uh, a blind eye to, to, to things that happen all around us every day in our workplaces and in our communities and certainly as we watch the news and see the way that people are treated um, not as images of you, not as precious loved creations of you, but, but much, much worse. People who are taken advantage of and, and, and those who um, sometimes use their power to privilege themselves. Um, help us to see those things and to acknowledge the truth that that's not the way that you intended the world to be. Give us eyes to see and clarity to be able to see these things and give us courage to name them and to say to ourselves and to say to you that's not right and to pray for justice in our world and we pray these things in your name amen